Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. With this in view, let us read Acts 18 through 28. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centuria, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. They came to Ephesus He left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord, rouse us from our lethargy. Spur us on when we are sluggish. Lead us with your gentle words. And comfort us in our grieving. 
all through the work of your word and your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Sometimes there is no harder realization to come to than the fact that you need help. Have you ever been there before, needing help? Come to that place where you realize you cannot do it by yourself? You come to that place where you've exhausted all of your own resources? You've come to that place where all of your pride has been stripped away from you and you know that the only way going forward, the only way out, is to get help. Getting help means admitting that we are needy. It means admitting that we don't have the strength. We cannot do it alone by ourselves. Have you been there before, needing help? Even the Beatles realize that you need help, right? Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody, help. Let us ask the question this morning, does the church ever need help? Does, does this church ever need help? How we sometimes might like to think that, oh, if, if we could just get to that point, if we could just be able to elevate ourselves to some level of self-sufficiency, self-sustaining strength, how great a position would that be, right? Or how frightfully awful, <laughs> That might be. We have to recognize with great humility that we are a needy people. But if we have the perspective that we need help, I need help, you need help, the next question that follows is, what is it that helps Christ's church? And how often do we think that we need help? Is there ever that point when you think you're going to get help? You're, you realize you need help. You think, okay, this is really going to help me. I'm going to get somewhere. Only to realize that the help you thought you were going to get wasn't help at all. That's what I fear happens too often today in too many churches. We look for help in all of the wrong places. And what we think is going to be help ends up to be no help at all. We turn to avenues that offer such hope and promise, only in the end to be left in the same position. We haven't been helped. We're no better off. Now what? We lose sight of what really helps Christ's church to be the church God has designed it to be. Do you realize that? God has designed us as His church to be something, to do something. So what is it that really helps Christ's church? Where are we going to find this kind of help that makes a difference in our lives? The kind of help that delivers on all of the promises made to us. Help that never disappoints. As Paul's second missionary journey comes to a close in our text this morning, 
And as his third missionary journey begins, we see how the church is being helped. And what is great is that the church is helped not just by Paul alone. Christ is using various people to help his church. It's a reminder that those people whom God uses to help the church do not and will not all look alike. They will not all have the same gifts. They will not all have the same backgrounds, but God still uses them to effectively help his church. So we turn our attention to see how the church is helped in these verses. Three things there on your outline. You can follow along as we go through them. But number one this morning, the church is helped when its disciples are strengthened. The church is helped when its disciples are strengthened. Our text begins with Paul in Corinth. He has just been accused by a Jewish mob of breaking the law, an accusation that the proconsul of the region, Gallio, would not even consider listening to. Do you remember that Paul was about to open up his mouth, but Gallio jumps in before Paul can say anything, comes to Paul's defense, wouldn't even consider the accusation that they were making against him. And Paul has been in Corinth a year and a half, but now we're told at the very beginning here of 18, he stayed many days longer. He continues to minister in this city of Corinth, in this commercial hub of the Roman Empire. He continued to see the Lord work. He continued to see the Lord save people in that city. He continued to teach the word to these new Christians. But there came a time when he had to leave. In all of the, these missionary journeys, we do not see Paul have a permanent ministry for very long. And so here he sets sail for Syria. Syria is the region of the church who had sent him. And he takes with them these fellow workers in the ministry. Do you see them here? He takes with them this couple, this husband and wife team. Priscilla and Aquila. Notice there for a moment the order of those names because the order of those names is important. And it's unusual because the wife is listed first. In fact, oftentimes when married couples are mentioned, it's usually the husband that's named first and then the wife, but always with this couple, it's Priscilla, the wife, and then Aquila, the husband. This designation gives us the idea that Priscilla had higher social status and greater prominence in the Christian community. It doesn't mean that she was in any way better than her husband, but it did mean that there is the very likely potential that she had more influence in the Christian community. And so whenever we read of this couple in the scriptures, they're referred to this way, Priscilla and Aquila. And Paul sees a great value in these people and this couple takes them with him they travel to this city called Centuria on the south side of Corinth and there we're told that Paul cuts his hair what's the significance of that just wanted to let us know that Paul was looking kind of shaggy rough around the edges needed a haircut no Paul had taken a vow most likely, it's the Nazarite vow from Numbers chapter 6. And if you took the Nazarite vow, there were a few stipulations to that vow. You could not 
eat anything off the vine, so nothing that was made with grapes. You could not touch anything that was dead, any dead bodies, and you could not cut your hair. Most of the time, people would take this vow asking for the Lord's blessing, asking for the Lord to care for them, to take care of them. And then oftentimes, when the vow was over, they would shave their head, they would cut their hair as an expression of thanksgiving. And so most likely, as we read this, Paul's vow has come to an end. He shaved his head as an expression of thanksgiving that God had taken care of him and God had taken care of the ministry in Corinth and that God had done everything that he had promised to do there in that city. Great expression of giving praise to God for how he had cared for Paul and for the ministry. Then, Paul and his companions move on to the city of Ephesus, another major city in the Roman Empire. This city is in a region called Asia. And if you remember back in the book of Acts, Paul was almost going to go into Asia. He was going to go there and minister there, and and the Holy Spirit said, no, no, Paul, don't go there. Go to Macedonia instead. That no, at that point, was not a final no, obviously, as Paul now is in Ephesus, in this region where he had once been prohibited to minister, but now he has the chance to minister in Ephesus. And so he does what he always does when he comes to a city. He goes into the synagogue, he reasons with the Jews from the Scriptures, he's telling them about Christ. And what a different reception Paul receives here at Ephesus than he did a few verses before in Corinth. Here in Ephesus, the people want him to stay. They plead with him. Paul's about to leave, but they say, no, Paul, you just got here. Why are you leaving so soon? Paul, however, leaves his fellow workers, Priscilla and Aquila, to minister to them there and says to them, if God wills, I will return to you. And soon... In Acts 19 and 20, we will see that God did will for Paul to come back and that Ephesus became a major city in his ministry. Continuing on this journey, Paul leaves Ephesus and he lands in Caesarea. And then it says he went up and greeted the church. And I think what the author of Acts, Luke, is communicating to us is that Paul, when he arrived at Caesarea and when it says he went up, that going up or he went up means he went up to Jerusalem. It's a, it's a designation of topography. When you go up, you go up to Jerusalem. And so I think what Luke is telling us is he went up to Jerusalem. He greeted the church there in Jerusalem. Then he went down 300 miles north to Antioch to the church that had sent him on his missionary journey. And he spent some time there. And then he departed and went to one place to the next, through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And so as Paul here goes into his third missionary journey in verse 23, he goes back to those regions where he had already been, those, those re- regions of Galatia and Phrygia, those cities that he had already been in where he had preached God's word, where he had seen people be saved, where he had begun Churches, he goes back to those cities and he's strengthening the disciples. 
He wanted to strengthen the Christians. It was a necessary work for him to do. It wasn't enough for him just to get the church started in those places. It wasn't enough just to get the ball rolling. He saw that if churches were to be helped, then the the disciples had to be strengthened. And I take this to mean that the disciples are strengthened in their faith. Strong, vibrant, healthy, faithful Christian living does not come all at once. It needs to grow. It needs to mature. It needs to be tended and maintained and encouraged and assisted. How foolish it would have been for Paul to say, well, I got them started, now I will just let them figure out the rest for themselves. They'll be all right. They'll be fine. They don't need me. They don't need anything more. That's not what Paul said, and that's not what Paul did. Why? Because Paul knew the deception of sin. Paul knew sin could potentially creep into people's lives and continue to cause problems and distort and twist the truth. Like the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 3, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end." Without the ministry of strengthening disciples, disciples are left malnourished, vulnerable, and instead of bringing glory to the name of Jesus Christ, the very name they have claimed that has been stamped upon their lives, they risk the chance of bringing disrepute to that name. Jesus Christ does not want his followers to be those of little faith. You see this reoccurring theme if you go through the Gospel of Matthew. Just listen to what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew. Why do you worry about what you will wear, O you of little faith? Matthew 6.30 Why are you afraid of the storm at sea, O you of little faith? Matthew 8.26 why do you doubt as you walk on the water, Peter, O oh, you of little faith? Matthew 14, 31. Why are you concerned that you have no bread to feed the multitude, O oh, you of little faith? Matthew 16, 8. Why are you not able to cast out the demon? Because of your little faith, Matthew 17, 20. Jesus does not want his disciples to have little faith. He wants them to have great faith. He desires that the quantity of their faith would increase. What a disastrous place to remain if if you are satisfied with little faith, with weak faith, with double-minded, malnourished, unencouraged, timid, weak, failing faith. Jesus desires for our faith to be strengthened so that we would be strong. And how does this happen? By having a bigger and better view of the object of your faith. 
enlarging the perspective you have of the object of your faith corresponds to enlarging your faith. Strengthening your view of the object of your faith corresponds to strengthening your faith. So what is your problem, O you of little faith? The problem is your Savior is too little. He is too small. He needs to be bigger and better. You need to have a more accurate picture of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus has done. This isn't to make Jesus look bigger or better than he actually is. No, it is the realization that Jesus is bigger and is better. And the problem is not with him. The problem is with us. The problem is with our failings to see Jesus as he really is. The problem is with sometimes our unwillingness to see Jesus as he really is. The only way that your faith will be strengthened, the only way that you will be strengthened as a disciple of Jesus Christ is if you have an accurate, big view of Jesus. And strengthened disciples are disciples that are made strong so that they are obedient disciples. A disciple who is enthralled with doing the will of the Lord. A disciple that's humbly sacrificing and serving. A disciple who desires to be more like his Savior, Jesus Christ, and pursues that end with all of the energizing power provided by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Maybe it would help us to understand the strengthening of disciples like the strengthening of a muscle. How do you strengthen a muscle? How does a muscle grow? You apply stress and pressure to the muscle. Stress and pressure that actually causes tears, actually damages the muscle. And then after those periods of exercise, you rest and the muscle repairs itself. But the repair doesn't actually weaken the muscle, it makes it stronger. Are we to believe that in order to be a strengthened disciple, that there might not need to be pressure that is applied? No, pressure does need to be applied. It can be applied in a very positive way through encouragement and exhortation. It can also be applied in the way of warning, rebuke, correction. That needs to be made. This is exactly what the ministry of the Word does in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is why we must get the Bible right, which leads us to number two. The church is helped by those who teach sound doctrine. The church is helped by those who teach sound doctrine. Verses 24 through 28 in our text this morning introduce us to a new person in the book of Acts, a man named Apollos, a man who, like Priscilla and Aquila, would become a vital minister in the early church. And what do we know about Apollos as we are introduced to him here? 
He is a native of Alexandria. Alexandria was a city in Egypt, a city known for its academies, known for its learning, a place of many schools with the emphasis on intellect and education. Also tells us that this message of Jesus has reached all the way down to Egypt. It's spreading like we've seen through the whole book of Acts. Apollos says was an eloquent man, that is he is learned, educated. He's able to communicate in an educated way. Also says he was competent or powerful in the scriptures. That is, he knew the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament scriptures were not circulating at this time. They were still being written. But Luke tells us that Apollos powerfully knows the Old Testament. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. This teaching of the way, we've heard that sometimes in Acts, of the way. The way there, he had been taught in the way of the Lord refers to a couple things. It refers first to the way of godly living. The way of living in such a way that you're honoring God with your lifestyle. So he had been taught how to live life. He knows what it means to follow the Lord and to walk by faith, but it also refers to the fact that there is only one way to do that, and that is through the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, that there is only one way to God. So Apollos accurately teaches the way of the Lord. He had been taught in the way of the Lord. He's also fervent in spirit, or we could say he was fervent in the spirit. This the, if we place it before, spirit, makes us think that he was fervent in the Holy Spirit. And fervency is a beautiful word picture here of boiling, like when water boils and it bubbles up. That's what what was happening in Apollos' life. He was so fervent that it was bubbling out of him. It was coming out of him. He couldn't be contained He's speaking, teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. There was just one problem. Do you see it there? He only knew the baptism of John. The baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism that was meant to point people to Jesus. It was to point to Him, Jesus, who would baptize those who believe in Him with the Holy Spirit. And it was like Apollos hung on to a shadow, the baptism of John, when he needed the substance, the baptism of Jesus. He needed to know about the fulfillment. He needed to know the words that Christ says in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So, Apollos needed a more accurate picture of Jesus' baptism. He needed to be taught of Jesus' baptism, which identifies people with Jesus in his death and resurrection. It was a deficiency in Apollos among all of the positive attributes that would commend him as a worthy and helpful servant in the ministry. And here is Apollos 
in the synagogue in Ephesus, speaking with boldness, and Priscilla and Aquila hear him, and they hear that something is missing. Something is not quite right. And so what do they do? Priscilla and Aquila could not let the inconsistency slide. They could not give him a pass. They could not overlook the error. But they didn't humiliate him. They didn't publicly rebuke him or confront him. They didn't up and reject him immediately because he fell, point at one sh- at, he fell short at one point. No, they cared about him. They saw the great benefit that he could be in the ministry of the church. And so they correct him out of concern for the church. Accurate, sound teaching and doctrine is the link to having a sound healthy, and vibrant church. Let me say that again. Accurate, sound teaching and doctrine is the link to having a sound, healthy, and vibrant church. And so it says that Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. He needed to be more accurate, more precise, more spot on. And Apollos also appears to be teachable, doesn't he? He was humble enough to receive this correction and humble enough to listen to it so that he could be more accurate in his teaching. Apollos did not say, look here, I am an educated, learned, eloquent man. I am confident and powerful in the scriptures. I am teaching the way of the Lord. I have figured it out all myself. No. Rather, he was shown a blind spot. And he humbled himself with a teachable spirit so that he might more accurately teach the way of the Lord. It was not enough to be generally accurate. He needed a precision on this because it was directly connected to gospel preaching. This is exactly what gospel ministry must center around, an accurate knowledge of Jesus Christ. It cannot be anything less because it is who Jesus is and what Jesus has done that is at the very core of the gospel. This sound doctrine is the way that the church will ever be helped. Titus 2.1, Paul says this, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he goes on to describe what it looks like. Do you know what it looks like? Do you know what it looks like when sound doctrine is taught? It doesn't look like people who are puffed up with intellect and knowledge. When sound doctrine is taught, you see it in transformed lives. You see it in people who cling to the gospel, who cling to the grace of God that has appeared so that they willingly renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. A people who are zealous for good works. That is what it 
flows out of sound doctrine. If you want people to live right, you have to teach them what is right. If you want to see people walk in the truth, you have to teach them the truth. If the church is going to be helped, if our church is going to be helped, it must be this sound doctrine that we are concerned about because it is what God uses in our lives to change us and make us different and transform us from one degree of glory into another. That is what sound doctrine looks like. And if you don't see lives transformed, if you don't see people change, make sure that it's sound doctrine. Make sure that it's coming from God's word. Because anything less is not sound doctrine. This is what sound doctrine does, my friends. We cannot skimp on it. Accurate, sound teaching and doctrine is the link to having a sound, healthy, and vibrant church. Number three, the church is helped by the defense of salvation in Christ alone. The church is helped by the defense of salvation in Christ alone. Here is Apollos. Equipped with sound doctrine, he's been taught more accurately the way. He desires to continue his gospel ministry in the region of Achaia, And more specifically, it appears that he wants to go to the city of Corinth. Corinth was a city in Achaia. This is where Priscilla and Aquila and Paul had just come from. This is where the Jewish mob had just risen up against Paul, not a few verses earlier. And notice the church in Ephesus, what they do. They encourage Apollos, and they even write a letter of commendation for him and send it to the church in Corinth. They're telling the Corinthians to receive Apollos, to welcome him. Obviously, there is still a need of ministry in Corinth, even after Paul and Priscilla and Aquila had left the city. The Corinthians, in fact, become so acquainted with Apollos that Paul writes about him and his letters to Corinth. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 6. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And so, here is Apollos being sent to Corinth to do the watering, to do the work of the watering. And look at the great work that he does. Here's how it's described. He greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. He was a help. He was a great help. Not a small help. Not an insignificant help. Not a good-for-nothing help. He was a great help, helping the believers. And look at how they are described. Those who, through grace, had believed. That is, God's grace. God's sovereign grace had saved them. God's sovereign grace had brought them to faith, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was nothing in them. It was nothing that they had done. It was no performance that they had accomplished. It was God's undeserved favor which shone down upon them and so worked in them that they came to believe. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, 
so that no one may boast. Apollos was helping those who had received this gift. This is the same gift that all believers of Jesus Christ have received. This is what is at the heart of anyone who is truly saved. It's the heart of salvation. You are not saved as a result of your own works. You are not saved as a result of your own performance. You are not saved because you have scraped and clawed and persisted to get to God and reach up to Him to somehow gain His ear so that He would hear you because there is something in you that would make Him listen to you. No, salvation is never attained by us reaching up to God. It is always and only ever God reaching down to us. Salvation is a work of the Lord from beginning to end, and it is He alone who can make you alive if you are dead in your sin. He alone can release you from the bondage you are in because of your sin and unbelief. He alone can forgive your sin through the shed blood of Jesus Christ He alone can open your eyes so that you see the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, who can give life. How are these who have been saved by grace, helped by Apollos? Look at verse 28 there, that last verse, and how it begins. He greatly helped those who had believed. How? For He powerfully refuted the Jews in public. Look at that word for. That's that word of of explanation for how Apollos greatly helped. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public by showing from the scriptures that the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God was Jesus. And if Jesus is the Christ, if he is in fact the Messiah, then he is Lord. Those two truths go hand in hand. And if Jesus is the Christ, then he is the only way to God. Here is what Apollos is saying. Salvation comes through Jesus and Jesus alone because Jesus is the king promised by God. He is the rescuer. He is the one who would come to save people from their sins. The one who would fulfill all of the promises made by God. There is no other salvation from God to look for. There is no other way to God. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. It is salvation in Christ and in Christ alone. You cannot add anything to Christ and still get salvation. It cannot be Christ plus works. It cannot be Christ plus tradition. It cannot be Christ plus some other special revelation you think you can receive apart from Him. It is not Christ plus your own goodness. It is not Christ plus your own righteousness. It is not Christ plus your own sacrifice. It is not Christ plus your own devotion. No, you are saved by Jesus Christ and by Him alone. You are saved by the God-man who lived the perfect life yet obeyed the will of God the Father and went to the cross to bear the sins of many. And it was there that the wrath of God was poured out on him. It was there that he received the punishment of God for the sins of others. It was there he was condemned for our sins. He died on that cross for our sin. He was buried in the tomb, but three days later he triumphed over the grave. 
He triumphed over sin. He triumphed over Satan. He triumphed over death. He arose completely vindicated by God. He is the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And because he was the perfect Lamb, he did not stay dead. But he arose to show that every sin upon him that was laid was completely paid for, completely atoned for. There is no other work to be done. Anything that you might try to add to Christ does not add salvation, does not bring you closer to God. This is the defense that Apollos was making. It is this defense of salvation in Christ alone that was of great help to the believers. To which we must ask, why? Why is this truth such a great help to them? Why is it such a great help to us? And here is why I believe they found it such a great help, not just to stick it to the Jews... But I believe that it speaks a word to them and it speaks a word to us that we desperately need to hear. A word that we need to hear regularly, a word that we need to hear often. The defense of salvation in Christ alone is a word of assurance. Do you ever waver? Does the thought ever creep in, am I saved? Is there any doubt you struggle with? Ever any questions? If Jesus is the Christ, and he is, if Jesus is the only way to be saved, and he is, If Jesus has done everything we need in order to be saved, and he has, there is nothing left for you to do except believe and follow him. The assurance of your salvation does not rest upon you. The burden that was upon your back has fallen off because of him, not because of you. Your freedom from bondage to sin has happened because of him, not because of you. The fact that you were once dead in sin but now have been made alive in him has happened of him, not because of you. Do you lack this assurance? Why? Who are you looking to for salvation? To yourself or to Jesus Christ? What a great help to you, church, because with Assurance comes the renewed confidence that now you're able to live your life for him because of what he has done for you. In response to him, not frantically, furiously, frustratingly trying to secure your own way into heaven, that kind of life is not helpful but harmful because it's not based on the truth of God's word. So, Let us be that church helped today by seeing our great need to be strengthened, our need for sound doctrine, and our need for salvation in Christ alone so that God might receive all the glory. Let's pray. 
Father, how we might need to hear these words today. Would you use them in our lives? Would you strengthen us with them today? Would they be in our ears this week as we go throughout our days, as we go through the times of thanksgiving to see how you care for us and you want us not to be those of little faith, but those of great faith. To be those who cling to the sound doctrine of your word because then comes transform life, lives to be those who are reminded each day and assured each day that salvation is in Christ and in Christ alone. That Jesus is the Christ. And so we ask that you would lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.